Welcome to the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum blog, where we like to talk about how to make marriage into a passionate adventure and not a giant to-do list. And it is March, which means we're getting into spring. And I've been talking about some new things on the blog. We're starting a new series on community and how to have community because a lot of people are just kind of lonely. But today, I'm going to do something a little bit different. My son-in-law, Connor, who is our tech director and who always puts these podcast together after I make a really big mess of the recording. Um, A number of you said that you really liked his editing last week where he threw in a bunch of our, that's what she said, bloopers. I haven't even listened. I'm scared too because I don't know which ones he left in, but um, he is having a midterm um, the day after we record this when he's supposed to be editing it. And so instead of having a big conversation with Rebecca and with my husband about community, which is what I wanted to do this week, I'm actually going to do something kind of necessary, which is I'm going to try to work through some of the backlog of our reader questions. I get sent so many reader questions in and uh, my good friend and ministry director Tammy puts them in a folder all categorized for me and I think I have a backlog of like 150 at least. She doesn't even put some of the ones in there that I've already answered. So this is just brand new questions. But it is easier to edit these podcasts when it's only me speaking and not a big conversation. So we're just going to take a stab at a whole bunch of these and see how many we can get through. A woman asks, is it okay to have sex with my husband that I'm separated from? She says, my husband left me and our children over a year ago now, and she has a legal separation so that he would help to support them. He hasn't done anything to initiate a divorce, and he will talk to them every once in a while. When he does see them, he ends up trying to have sex with her. And she says, my problem is that I love my husband and I still want him and I love sex. I am having such a hard time being without sex for so long. I've gotten several offers from men who have wanted to be with me. And I know that would be disgusting and wrong, but honestly, it's really tempting. So my question is, would it be terribly wrong of me to have sex with the husband that I love and I want to return to? The Bible says not to deprive each other. And it's better to be married and have sex than to burn with passion, which is definitely what I'm feeling. So I don't know what to do. Don't have sex with the guy. Okay, please don't. You got to keep the long-term view here. If he leaves and you do get a divorce, I mean, he's already left. So if this gets finalized, you're going to have to deal with sexual temptation. Okay, it is not a good idea just to jump into bed with people. We want sex to be within marriage because then it can represent everything that God wants it to, you know, physically intimate, emotionally intimate, spiritually intimate, all at the same time. When we have sex outside of marriage, it can it can make us feel far more bonded than we actually are. And then we can think we have this relationship that we really don't. Plus, there's all the other issues, you know, STDs, pregnancies. And even if you control for those things with condoms, etc., you know, it's just better if people stick to proper relationships in the way and with the boundaries that God set up. So please don't have sex with him, okay? Because if you do, you're just letting him get away with having this relationship with you whenever he wants, totally on his terms. And I know that you want to have sex, but you got to keep the long-term view here. You either are going to put the marriage back together or he's going to leave. But living in this limbo is not good for anyone, especially your kids, because your kids are got to be confused about what's going on. So here's when you just got to be the adult. And I know that's difficult and I'm not trying to make it sound like it isn't, but 
be the adult, okay? See some counseling. Um, make sure you've got great friends to support you. Just get really busy. Stay really busy with your kids. Stay busy with other things. But I, I also think that this limbo isn't really good. And at some point, your husband is going to have to decide, does he want to return to you or does he want to leave? And letting him set the terms of that, like letting him just dangle you along and not giving you any answer, that's not good. Like you're worth more than that. You really are. So get some backbone and tell him he's got to figure this out. Okay. I know that sometimes we want to really hold on, especially because we want to reconcile, especially when there's kids involved and we have this dream of the marriage going well, especially if you're in love with him. But letting him do whatever he wants, letting him go and run around and then come back when he feels like having sex with you and then go run around again. That's not going to get you what you want. It isn't. And what we need is for people to look more like Christ and letting him do all this stuff is not helping him look like Christ. And it's not helping you find peace either. So let him go, like truly let him go. And then if he comes back, that's great. But if he doesn't, you'll be in a stronger place. And if you let him go, then you're in a position, you know, where maybe he will initiate a divorce or whatever. And you can start saying, okay, is there someone else out there who's going to help um, who's going to be the proper spouse, but don't, don't, don't let him put you in this limbo. You're worth more than that. Um, and so treat yourself like you're worth more than that. Okay. That one was really sad. I'm going to deal with another sad one just to get it out of the way. Um, this week on the blog, we've been talking about divorce and adultery and abuse and stuff like that. And so this one kind of fits in with that. She says that she and her husband have been married for over a decade and a half, and they have several kids together. And in the months leading up to a major birthday in her husband's life, she could tell that he was feeling uneasy about something. And when she pressed him on it, he confessed and came out of the closet. And he said that he's been in the closet since childhood, but now he's realized that he needs to be true to himself and he needs to embrace his homosexuality. And so he has asked for a divorce. And she says, I know divorce is wrong unless the spouse is a cheater or an abuser or abandoned the spouse and family, but none of those are applicable in my marriage. Um, yeah, he's abandoning you. Okay, he's asking for a divorce. He is abandoning you. That is abandonment. Okay, but she says, um, he has never cheated on me and he's not leaving me for another man. He just wants to live out of the closet. So would I be sinning if I remarried? I don't want to be an adulterer in God's eyes by sinning and remarrying when my first husband is still alive and we didn't divorce for any of the valid reasons. He's abandoning you. So I think sometimes we get so caught up in the legalistic bits of this. And like I said on Wayne Grudem's post on Tuesday, you know, Wayne Grudem for years and years and years, I think it was like three decades, said you cannot divorce for abuse. And now he talked to two women who were abused, had compassion, and now says, okay, maybe you can divorce for abuse as long as you talk to your elders board and your pastor and they agree, which is so highly problematic. If your husband's abusing you, please do not talk to your elder and pastor's board. Get a licensed therapist, okay? That's the first step is getting licensed. No, the first step, of course, is getting out and getting to safety, but then talk to a licensed therapist. Don't go to marriage counseling with a licensed therapist, not good in cases of abuse, but talk to a licensed therapist for yourself. I just think how much 
Heartache could have been spared if Wayne Grudem had bothered to talk to two abused women 30 years ago instead of waiting 30 years. Like, it's great that he's now coming around, although he's only halfway coming around. But this legalistic thing where we like to put divorced people in this perpetual prison, like they've done something wrong. This woman has not done anything wrong, okay? Her husband is saying, I don't want to be married anymore. That's abandonment. And so, yes, you can remarry. It's really important, too, to understand that in the Bible, when the Bible gives you permission to divorce as a woman, it's also giving you permission to remarry. Because in those days, a woman could not support herself. She needed to be with a man. And so to tell a woman that she could divorce but not remarry was basically telling her you need to live in abject poverty and become a beggar or else you need to become a prostitute because there were no other options. The fact that he left out remarry does not mean that you're not allowed to remarry in these cases, okay? When divorce was permitted, the remarriage already would have been implied. So yes, you can remarry, and I, I wish that we could see things as not not as legalistic as this, like where we're looking at the absolute letter of the law and we're missing Jesus's great compassion for people. And Jesus does have great compassion for people, and he sees how much you're hurting and how much your children must be hurting over this. And I just, I just wish all of you a great way forward, because I think that's such a tremendously difficult situation to navigate for your husband as well. And I just wish all of you a great way forward. Okay, here's a totally different one. She's asking about the connection between sex, UTIs, and vaginismus. And she says, I have had chronic UTIs, that's urinary tract infections, throughout my entire marriage. And by chronic, I mean sometimes one to two a month. All of them happen after sex. These UTIs have made me equate sex with pain, along with long bouts of antibiotics that wreak havoc on my body. Unsurprisingly, this has caused me to develop mild vaginismus and a pretty strong aversion to sex. For me, I not only have to be in the mood, but it also needs to be a time that I can afford a day off work, doctor's appointments, and a very sick stomach for a week while on antibiotics. Let's just say there is rarely a good time for that. The long story short is that my vaginismus is caused by a fear of recurring UTIs. Despite doing all of the right things, pee before and after sex, cranberry juice, etc., I can never guarantee that I won't get one from sex. I feel so hopeless and trapped, and I don't know how I will ever overcome this. It's hard to hear just think the right thoughts when I don't know how. All right. When I hear a question like this, my first reaction is when your body is doing something which isn't normal you need to become the biggest advocate you can for your body, okay? Like last month, we were talking about how to treat your body like a friend, and your body is calling out to you, and it needs you to be its friend. And having constant UTIs and rounds of antibiotics, no, that's not good for your body. But it's also not normal. And sometimes people react to things in ways that aren't normal. So talk to your doctor. And if your doctor is not helping you, get a second opinion. Go see an OB-GYN. Go see an allergist. Um, even, I mean, I'm married to a medical doctor, so I'm not overly like I'm not a big proponent of a lot of herbal stuff and everything like that or naturopath stuff, but sometimes there are some things that that medical doctors don't see as quickly. And it might be that you just need to go onto a total 
um, whole 30 diet, like where you get rid of everything in your diet and then you slowly reintroduce things and you try to figure out if there's something that you're eating that is triggering some of these things. Something that you are eating or exposed to could be causing inflammation or problems that is then setting the condition for you to have a reaction to sperm, latex from condoms or whatever it might be. And so you might need to just do a huge purge of of what you're eating, um, your shampoo, what you're putting on yourself, like anything that can cause your body to to react and then slowly reintroduce things until you can figure out what the trigger is. Because a lot of things do trigger us in all kinds of different ways. And so try that. Also, a couple of years ago, I went through a stint where I was having several recurrent UTIs. And what we found out is that I wasn't actually having recurring UTIs. It was that I had the same UTI and it was just not really fixed. It just went asymptomatic. So it was like it was still there in the background. So what they did was they put me on a two-month stint with very low-dose antibiotics. Maybe it was even a three-month. I don't know. And then that cleared everything up. So it could be that you've actually had a UTI for years that's never fully cleared up. And so going on a much longer stint can help it. Um, so I, I would just say explore those things. But my bigger thing, my the bigger thing that I just want to say is when your body is doing something that isn't normal, keep going to doctors and keep asking the questions until you get help. Okay, don't settle for not knowing. Keep talking to people until you get someone who can actually help you because yeah, this is a serious thing and it really does matter. Here's another health one that is a great question. It's something that we really need to talk about more. Okay, so she says, I was speaking with some friends of mine last month and the topic came up about the way things look downstairs after having children. Uh, By the way, I love her group of friends. Like, wouldn't it be great to have a group of friends where you talked real about stuff? (laughs) Anyway, she says, I don't usually look at things down there, but when there seems to be an issue, I pull out the mirror to check things out from time to time. The labia minora is all stretched out and it's super dark down there. My friend and I were talking about how this can be very uncomfortable during sex. I know that it's probably normal and something that we just have to deal with, but I had to look things up. Why wasn't this in a what to expect book or something when I was having kids? Anyway, I would love to have you write something about it, about the way things change after kids and as we age. My mom had to use some estrogen cream down there due to tearing from thin skin. um, But why didn't I know about stuff like this? Okay, great question. What often happens is that we get scar tissue, especially if we have torn after children. And that's why it can be really important to see a pelvic floor physiotherapist who can just help stretch you out again and can encourage that skin, um, yeah, just to become more stretchy again so that sex isn't painful. Because a lot of people do have postpartum pain with sex that they didn't have before. And it is because of changes, uh, especially due to tears. But also that's just a lot of trauma to put your your body through. <laughs> and so we do have a lot of changes. Things are a lot more open. When people look at pictures after you have kids, it's like, wow, things are a lot more knobby because sometimes you can have, you know, skin tags and things like that from, um, from tears. Things are a lot more open. It just seems a little bit strange. And you might look at yourself down there in a the mirror and go, holy cow, what happened? <laughs> and so it is, it is good to be aware that things do not always stay the same. I will say again, though, that if you're having pain 
with sex after having kids, again, please see a doctor, become your body's biggest advocate, ask for help from a pelvic floor physiotherapist because there are stretches that you can do. You know, sometimes the problem is that we need to get more control over our muscles and that's where um, Kegel exercise is and we're going to be talking about uh something called a perifit, which is a great new device that was sent to me in the mail, which I think can can really help us strengthen those muscles and get control over them. Often when, when we tense a lot during sex, which is quite common in the postpartum period as well, it seems counterintuitive, but the way to learn how to loosen up is actually to learn how to tighten. Because if you can tighten, it means you can control those muscles. And if you can control them, then you can also relax. So yes, it's important to learn um, how to tighten those muscles. But when it comes to skin changes and changes to the outer area, or even scar tissue in the internal vaginal wall, if your tears have been really bad, that's where we need to learn um, how to stretch things out because scar tissue can cause things just not to be very elastic and you kind of need stuff to be elastic down there. Um, so I think what she might be talking about is a lot of scar tissue. But if you ever have any questions about this, really ask your doctor. This is not weird. They're not going to be freaked out by you talking about this. Doctors tend to be quite open to talking about this stuff. So if you look down there and something doesn't look right, it's okay to ask your doctor. We did some posts last month on sex in the postpartum period and Rebecca and Joanna recorded a podcast about some of the things that they've gone through. Rebecca had some really bad tears. And so I'm going to put a link to those things in the description to this podcast. There's always a post that goes along with the podcast with all kinds of rabbit trails. And so please check that post out and you can learn more about postpartum sex. As for menopause, yes, a lot of menopause um, does impact the whole vaginal area. Um, we often get a lot less blood flow to the genitals. That makes arousal more difficult. It makes lubrication more difficult. And estrogen cream really can help quite a bit. So if you're having any of these changes or if you just notice that things just don't feel like they used to, you know, ask your doctor if there is something that can help. And often estrogen creams can. Are you part of the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum community? Sign up for my emails and you'll get weekly Friday updates with behind-the-scenes pictures and info, exclusive video content, stuff I'm wrestling with, and more. You'll also get access to our free resource library with over 25 marriage and parenting freebies, my free five-day sex pep talk, and more. Sign up on the homepage at tolovehonorandvacuum.com. Here's another question from a woman who wants to know if something is normal or not. She says, I'm married and I've always had so many dreams to travel. And before my husband and I were ever married, I told him that he has always been supportive and knows it's a priority for me, but not for himself. So he has no problem if I go on trips without him. We always discuss how long the trips will be and the budget and so on. He and I have no issues with it, but I have a married friend who's also a Christian who seems to always make passive aggressive comments about how me and my husband should be spending more time together. Or she seems to always make some comment about us doing things without the other. From my observations, her relationship is very codependent, whereas my husband and I are very independent. Again, my husband and I have never had issues about this, and we communicate very openly with each other. My question is more out of curiosity. Is it normal for married couples to travel apart? Is there a point where it becomes an issue? Or do you think it isn't okay or is unhealthy? 
personally, I think we talk too much about what's normal and what people should do. And we talk too much in terms of specifics instead of principles. And I think if we stick with principles, each couple can work out the specifics on their own because we're all different. We all have different amounts of money, different jobs, different numbers of kids, different ages, um, different interests, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think the principles are important, not necessarily always the specifics. I mean, if you ask about me personally, I don't really like traveling much without my husband because when I have new experiences, I really like to have him there to have that experience with me. And if I have to see something and he's not there, I kind of feel bad. I remember when Tammy and I were in Colorado Springs when I was uh, speaking once and we went to the Garden of the Gods, which is amazing. And all I could think of the whole time I was there was I wish Keith were here to see it with me. Now, mind you, I think very similar things about my daughters, which is why we travel so much with our kids and their husbands still. But yeah, me personally, I don't like to travel much without my husband. At the same time, my cousins and I are making plans to start annual cousins trips where it's just the three of us traveling. I think that often there's very good reasons to travel with friends or family without your spouse because you're working on other relationships. Uh, I took Rebecca away for her 18th birthday. I took Katie away for her 18th birthday. And those were just trips with me and my daughter. So So I will say this, I do think it's important to spend prolonged downtime with your spouse throughout the year. So time when neither of you has work pressures. It doesn't mean you have to travel, but I think that time is important so that you can just do whatever it is that you enjoy doing, whether it's in your city or around your house or whatever. So if you only have three weeks of vacation and you are spending all of that vacation on your own, I don't think that's a healthy thing. Okay, so I think a principle is that we should have downtime throughout the year that we are spending together. That's something that every marriage needs. If you can achieve that and still have and still travel on your own and not break the budget and still make financial goals of meeting your need for retirement, children's savings, if he still has some money that he's able to spend on himself too, I really don't think that's a big problem. I think it's also important that you're making memories together in some way. So you need to have some hobbies you do together, some fun things you do together. All of the fun in your life should not be spent alone. But if some of it is spent alone, that really is okay. I will say too that I think that we just have these pictures of what the proper marriage relationship is. And we need to stop that as Christians. You know, um, we judge each other a lot and... Uh, that's just not very helpful. Having the big principles in place matters, having the specifics doesn't. So for instance, this has nothing to do with the question, but this is just an example of what I'm talking about. One of my big principles is that both partners work in the sense that we both are contributing to this marriage. Now the, that those contributions may look very different because some people might have a lot of paid work and some people may have a lot of housework. When my husband was in residency and in his early years of his medical practice and I was homeschooling the kids, I did almost all of the housework and he did almost all of the paid work. And that was okay. Um, I know other relationships where it's the opposite, where she does the paid work and he does the housework and, and a lot of the daytime childcare. And that's okay too. I don't think it matters how you do it, but the principle is that both people need to be doing it. So for instance, if she is doing all of the housework and the childcare and he is working for 40 hours a week and then he comes home, he doesn't get the nights and weekends off. If she is working, 
then he needs to be working as well. She may get a little bit of time off during the day and certainly he may, you know, he should be taking some time off during the day as well or in the, in the night, whatever. And I'm not talking that you should measure every single moment, but you just need to be aware of this stuff. And if one person never has time just to sit and relax and the other person has a lot of time to sit and relax, that's not right. But the question of who does the dishes or who does the finances or who does the childcare or who does the paid work, that doesn't matter. The, the principle is, are we all working together for the good of the family? And are we all getting time to rest and rejuvenate? Do we all feel like we get to use our gifts and we get to explore the callings God's given us? Or is only one person feeling that way? So that's a big principle that we may live out very, very differently from couple to couple. And so it's important that we don't judge each other if they're living it out in a different way. Can you think your way to a great marriage? Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage shows how we often think wrongly about submission, sex, conflict, even anger, and how changing how you think can actually change how you feel and act, too. Don't settle for an okay marriage. Get a great marriage with Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. One last question, and this is the kind of question that comes in that Tammy goes, no, that's not really a thing, is it? And then I read it and I go, no, that's not really a thing, is it? And then we research it and we realize, oh my gosh, that's a thing. How can this be a thing? And so let me read you about this thing. A woman, a dear woman writes, I wonder if you could talk about the shepherding theology. It started in the 1970s, and it was eventually renounced by those who started it as a flawed message, but it still impacts the church. My dad believed heavily in this theology, and because of it, I was brought up believing that because he was my spiritual covering, the authority over me ordained by God, I had to submit my will to him in everything. His will was God's will in my life. That's how the doctrine works. Even after I had left home and was supporting myself, only marriage would release me to the covering of another man and only to a man my dad approved of and in my dad's timing. It was very hard to break away from this, and because I did, my parents hardly speak to me now. They see me as a wayward child, a prodigal, and what I've done as utterly scandalous, a rebellious act against God. My rebellious act is that I decided to marry the man I loved against their wishes. But I still love Jesus with all of my heart, and so does my husband. We've just both been so hurt and confused by this doctrine, as we've spent two years trying to gain my parents' approval together by submitting to it. I was curious, what would you say about this? The primary book that houses this theology is called Undercover by John Bevere. It mainly focuses on church mentor-mentee relationships, but it manifests in families as well, as mine is an example, and I have met several couples who went through the same thing that my husband and I did. I know you have spoken extensively about the dangers of wives submitting to their husbands in this authoritarian sense, but what about when it extends to daughters under their fathers? In my home, I was expected to submit to my dad in exactly the same manner that my mom was as his wife, and the passages of scripture about wives submitting to their husbands were also applied to me regarding my dad. What is really truly the biblical role of a daughter? My brothers did not have the same expectation over their heads as Christ is the covering of man, but man the covering of woman, and I am the only daughter in my family, very alone in my experiences. Oh, this thing makes me so heartbroken, and 
I'm, I'm going to try to deal with it because there may be some of you who are also living through this. And I just want to, I just want to let you know a way through. So let me start with a story. When I was going to pre-marriage counseling with my husband, um, we were seeing a pastor who I guess believed in a little bit of this because he was explaining all about headship and how once we were married, I would pass under the spiritual authority of my father to the spiritual authority of my husband. And I said that was a little bit problematic since my father was not a Christian and had not been involved in my life since I was two. And so was my mother my spiritual authority? And he said, well, no, my mother couldn't be my spiritual authority because she was a woman. So there had to be a man in my life acting as my head. And so he grilled me as to who could possibly be my spiritual covering right now because I needed a man to be my spiritual covering. And so in that in that meeting, we decided that my uncle was my spiritual covering because he was the closest male relative um, that I had who was a Bible professing Christian. I want you to understand how terribly hurtful this whole thing is. Like if this is true, if it is true that women need a spiritual covering, then what happens to the daughters of single mothers? (laughs) Is it that they're out there alone? And probably the people that believe this doctrine would say yes. But let me tell you, I had a wonderful mother and I was raised to be a very strong Christian and I've always loved Jesus and I have never felt that there was anything spiritually lacking in me because of that, because of the way that I grew up. I had other things that were very problematic because of that, but I never felt like I didn't have a spiritual authority or something. And so this whole doctrine makes no sense when you look at it in the broader perspective. But she's asking, what is the role of a daughter? And I'll tell you what the role of the daughter is. It's quite simple. It's seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of these things will be added unto you. It's Matthew 6, 33. That's the spiritual role of every person on earth. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We are to seek the kingdom of God. We are not to seek our father's will. We are to seek our heavenly father's will. When we pray, we pray, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. That is the will that we want to see done in our lives. And your responsibility as a Christian is to run after Jesus as fast as you can. There is nothing in the Bible that says that women need a spiritual covering in a way that a man doesn't. There is a passage in Corinthians which talks about how when women pray, they need to pray with their head covered. And I think that's probably where this whole thing comes from, that you need a covering as a sign of authority. But that is not what it meant in context. And I will put a link in the description of this podcast to some wonderful articles uh, that that Marg uh, Mausko has written all about this. And she goes into much greater detail into the biblical Greek and all of that to explain that. I'm not going to do it here. But there's nothing that says that women need a spiritual covering in their lives in a way that men don't in our normal day-to-day lives. And there's also nothing in the Bible that says that women need an authority in a way that men don't. Um, All the passages about how man is the head of the wife, that isn't about a man having authority or that he's some sort of chief or leader. And I did a different podcast on the meaning of the word head, and I will link as well to that podcast here so that you can listen. It's actually one of my favorite podcasts. I think it was one of the most popular last year. So if you haven't listened to it, please do. But I don't want to reiterate all of that here. 
Okay, but there is nothing in the Bible that says that a woman is never has her own authority, but she's going to pass from the authority of her father to her husband in a way that is somehow different than the way her brothers might. That's why it's really important in a marriage ceremony that we do it a little bit differently. I'll tell you what we did when both of my daughters got married. They did not ask. We specifically told the pastor, do not ask who gives this woman away because Rebecca and Katie were not ours. They were adults. They belonged to God. Okay, Rebecca and Katie both made the decision to get married on their own. Instead, what we did was we had the pastor ask both sets of parents to stand. And then the pastor said, do you release your children to each to their respective spouses? And do you agree to let them go? And do you bless this marriage? And that's what we said, because... You know, biblically, kids are supposed to leave their parents. And so in the marriage ceremony, we as parents were affirming that we were blessing our children in the leaving. We weren't handing them to the spouse. We weren't saying, okay, our kids are now going from our authority to someone else's authority. We were blessing them in the leaving. And I think that's a very important distinction. And so, you know, when we're doing marriage ceremonies, just think about that. Are you really saying, like, if you're, if your daughter is getting married, are you really saying that she is passing from the authority of the father to the husband? And if that's not what you believe, then don't act it out in the marriage ceremony. Act out what you actually believe, okay? And what we believed is that both sets of parents need to bless their children in the leaving. <laughs> your children are under your authority. Both daughters and sons are under your authority when they are children. But even then, the main authority they're under is God. And what we raised our kids to do was to think critically and was to seek God's will. And even if that meant not believing what we believed, because ultimately they need to make their own decisions. And we should never be trying to control another human being. It's just, it's wrong. I, I don't know how else to put it. It's just so terribly, terribly wrong. And some theology that says that, that a father can make decisions for his daughter and that the daughter must obey the father when the daughter is an adult that's infantilizing and that is taking away the daughter's humanity, <laughs> that's taking away her personhood. That's not right. And if your parents are treating you this way, then you need to say, I'm sorry, mom and dad, but I, am, I'm a, but I am my own person and I am going to make my own decisions. I hope that you will bless me in that and I love you and I want to keep a relationship with you, but I cannot be under your authority like this. I had a question on a podcast last year. I'll see if I can find it and link it to it again about a guy who was dating a woman uh, long distance and he really wanted to marry her. But the problem was she wanted her father's approval and he wasn't giving it. And so I said to the guy, you need to decide whether you're willing to continue with this relationship because a daughter who will not make her own decisions and who's abdicating her decisions to her father when that daughter is an adult is not necessarily going to be a good marriage partner. <laughs> you know, at some point you need to stand on your own. So what's the biblical role of a daughter? It's the same as the biblical role of a son. It's the biblical role of a mother or a father or a grandparent. It's the biblical role of a person. And it is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so let me also remind you of 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, which says in the New Revised Standard Version, for there is one God and there's also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus himself human. Your mediator between God is not your father. It is Christ Jesus. Do not 
ever put your father or any other human being in the place of Jesus in your life. That is a form of idolatry. And if a man, whether it's your husband or your father, wants that role in your life, that is not coming from the Holy Spirit. That is a man trying to exert control over you, and that is wrong. If a mother does that too, by the way, it's wrong. Nobody should control you. Nobody should be wanting to play the role of Jesus in your life. If they are, they are being sinful. They are the ones missing the mark. And it is okay for you to say no. I'm going to run after Jesus and I am going to seek God's will and I'm going to make my decisions as I am led by the Holy Spirit because I have the Holy Spirit indwelling me as much as you do you and I am responsible to the Holy Spirit, not to you. Here's another one where Christians can feel a lot of guilt. She says, I feel so ashamed to ask, but I've been struggling with attraction to a married man in our church. I'm married to a pastor very, very happily for over a decade. I have a whole bunch of kids. He's lovely and he's attentive husband. Yet for whatever reason, I'm attracted to this other man. I even have sexual dreams and I just can't make it go away. It's been five years. The shame and struggle is real and it's causing me all kinds of issues. I haven't said anything to anybody until this moment. I'd love some suggestions on how to deal with this. I won't lie. If you tell me step one is to share this with my husband, well, that might be a tough sell at this point. He's wonderful and I just want this to go away. I want to be faithful in my thoughts. So any insight would be so appreciated. You can be faithful in your thoughts and still have sex dreams about someone else. (laughs) Okay. We're not responsible for our dreams and please don't feel guilty for your dreams. That isn't a conscious thing and God does not hold us responsible for things like that. It might be an unconscious thing and it might be a signal that something weird is going on, but it isn't always. Sometimes it's just a signal that you ate something weird for dinner. So don't feel guilty about your dreams. Okay. Also, we can feel attracted to someone without there being anything wrong in our marriage. I think when you start feeling like someone else is really attractive, then you you start asking yourself, what's the matter? Don't I love my husband? I must be really upset about something. Don't go down that road. You might be perfectly happy in your marriage. It's just that, you know, when you've been married to one person for a long time, something new does seem a little bit more exciting. That's just normal human behavior. It's normal. You can, however, stop the thought patterns. And the way you do that is just by taking every thought captive. So when a thought comes in your head about this man, turn it into a prayer of thanksgiving for something about your husband. Um, Turn it into a prayer for this man's marriage. Ask God to bless this man's marriage. Ask God to turn this man's heart towards his wife. Um, But I would concentrate much more on praying for your own marriage and your own husband than his because even that, the act of praying for his marriage keeps you focused on that guy. And you just don't need that. I am not going to tell you to talk to your husband. So I'm sure you're very relieved about that. Some people may disagree with this advice. And I think it does vary in some marriages. You know, that might be a safe thing to do. But my own thoughts would be, why would you burden your spouse about it when it hasn't necessarily been a sin? Okay, there's nothing that she's told me that says that she is sinning here. What she's told me is that she's attracted to this guy and she's dreaming about him. She's not telling me that she's fantasizing about him or that she's thinking of leaving her husband or even that she's upset at her husband. She's just really upset at these thoughts. And being attracted to someone is not a sin and dreaming about someone is not a sin. So to make your husband feel unwanted or threatened when it's not a sin issue, I think can do incredible damage to your husband that isn't necessary. 
I would, however, find someone safe to talk to about it, just so that you have an accountability partner and someone who can pray with you. Maybe there's a friend, an older person, someone that you can trust, that you can just say, I'm having this issue. I have no desire to pursue this relationship. I just want it to stop. And sometimes speaking it out loud really helps. So I have actually written about this before, about uh, being attracted to someone, emotional affairs, and even how much you should confess to your husband. So I'm going to put a link to all of those posts in the podcast description, and you can go on those rabbit trails and see these things at much more length. But I would just say your dreams are not a sin. Your thoughts, your being attracted to someone is not a sin. And if these thoughts do come up, just simply turn them into prayers of blessing on this guy and his wife, and especially prayers of thanksgiving for your husband. If you can avoid him in certain social situations, that's probably a wise thing to do. Just focus on other groups of friends. But if you can't, then just take that route and get to know his wife really well, become friends with her, (laughs) uh, and see if that helps. So thanks for joining me for this To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast. Always a pleasure to have you all listen. And it is such an encouragement how many of you are here, how many of you have subscribed. Please, if you haven't, please subscribe. And remember to rate this podcast a five star uh, wherever you listen to it. Um, Give it a review. It really does help other people find it. And it gives me some encouragement too. I have just heard from Connor, who did write his exam, that it went really well. So way to go, Connor. And next week, we will be having a conversation with Rebecca and some others about community and how to build it. So that's coming to go along with our Monday series. So join us on the blog. Check out that blog about community. Check out the podcast post that's going along with this because I think some commenters are going to have some pretty interesting answers to some of these questions as well. And as always, I love your feedback. And join us on to lovehonorandvacuum.com for more stuff about marriage, sex, and everything else. <laughs>